Hi everyone, this is Jason from Blockworks. I'm super excited to share that after a long hiatus, the podcast Uncommon Core is back. Hosted by Hasu with new co-host John Charbonneau, Uncommon Core is for Gigabrain listeners only. Episode one just dropped. Don't touch anything and you will hear episode one in this feed. If you want to get notified for future episodes, just search Uncommon Core in your podcast player and subscribe. Now, Let's get into this episode of Uncommon Core with Hasu and John Charb. This is Uncommon Core 2. Whether you are an old or new listener, I want to spend a few minutes on what you can expect from this show going forward, what's going to change, and what's going to stay the same. Uncommon Core has always been a passion project of mine. It was a podcast that was about me taking the position of a student who asks simple questions about the big and timeless ideas in crypto. Sometimes I did that with expert guests from the industry, but usually with my former co-host Suzu. Now, I don't know whether Su's firm, Three Arrows Capital, has misrepresented their solvency in 2022, nor if they have borrowed money while already insolvent. I was never close with Sue personally, nor did I have any insights into Three Arrows. I just know that we did some great episodes together for you guys and that I learned a lot from them. By late 2021, Sue and I had been drifting apart for a while. As my interests were increasingly moving away from markets and investing towards technology and becoming a builder myself. I made a big leap by joining Flashbots, an organization formed to mitigate the harmful effects from MEV on public blockchains, as well as becoming an advisor to the Lido DAO. And now I am completing the circle by bringing Uncommon Core back with a new concept and a new co-host. The new focus of Uncommon Core will be on exploring the technology and incentives that make public blockchains work under the hood with a special attention paid to the three big fields of MEV, blockchain security, and the roll-up ecosystem. I will be joined by my new co-host, John Charbonneau, the co-founder and managing partner of DBA, a research-driven crypto investment firm based in New York. Like me, John is deeply passionate about understanding and improving the infrastructure that makes crypto work. Together, we will speak with some of the incredible builders and researchers who are continually pushing the frontier to make the mass adoption of crypto possible. What won't change is the values that made Uncommon Core successful for 37 episodes and way over 1 million downloads. Deep curiosity, intellectual honesty, and the desire to break down complex ideas together. We hope that you will join us on this journey into the heart of the machine. What, what is a good way to start you know, a podcast after a one and a half year hiatus? Um, what, John, it's, it's really good to, to have you and to be doing this with you. Um, how are you doing? Good. It is weird to be uh, on here on the other side of this now, considering this, this was the podcast that I was listening to and I just got into crypto. I had been thinking about restarting the, the podcast a few times and um, yeah, you were one of the very few people I, I could imagine doing it with. I was, I was hinting at it in, in the intro, but my, my interests had been kind of shifting um, gradually uh, more and more away from investing and, and trading and kind of market psychology and DeFi as well, frankly. 
I'm much more to the infrastructure side. And so I'm really glad that um, we have the opportunity to to dive deeper into these topics together. Yeah, should be fun. I was the person who was always liking those tweets of waiting for you to restart the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about you for a second. You're the new kid on, on the blog. Um, what do you spend your time on in crypto in in an average week? So average day, I probably spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, that is honestly a lot of actually how I found a lot of stuff at first, particularly early on. You just kind of find that as like you start to filter through and find all your information there. I'd say a lot of my day is honestly just going through stuff that I find on there, different research and reading, probably less than I would like. Uh, like during the during the week, you definitely have a lot more busy work than you like to. Uh, I like generally my weekends are the times that I get to do the work that like I actually like to do all like all of the types of work that I like all of the longer form writing and stuff like that in particular. Uh, you just kind of really need to sit down and just like block out time to do that kind of stuff. You like you need to have a few days aside just to be able to turn everything off. Usually during the week is when I'm doing a lot of just talking to people about like different ideas that I'm working on. And then the weekends slash end of the week are the times where I'm just going to go into like a rabbit hole for three days and not talk to anyone and have a hundred tabs open on my computer and just like start writing um, and reading through everything. Is writing for you an important part of, of processing the whatever you're reading, connecting yeah. the dots? Yeah, I like it, it's that it's one of the things that I actually figured out pretty early in crypto. It's not something that I actually used to do um, when I was in school or my previous jobs. Um, like, I wish I kind of knew this in hindsight, but like writing works just incredibly well for me. It, it's mm -hmm. I, so much of what I would do starting out when I was like crypto was like a hobby kind of thing. It was just hey, you just read stuff, you listen to podcasts and you listen to it. and You think you understand stuff really, really well. Um, and then the second you try to go explain this to someone else, like right after the fact, you realize, oh, I understood probably one percent of that. Like it just mm -hmm. did not stick at all. It makes sense as the person is saying it. And then when you try to like say it back, it's, none of it stuck in there. Um, writing is the only way in particular, like really long form stuff. Like I really need mm -hmm. to just build an idea, um, and force myself to go through everything to learn it. Um, it just forces you to like turn over just every leaf possible on whatever this idea is. Um, when you just, you know, you are looking at everything possible on this topic and then you send that out to a bunch of people mm -hmm. before I finish it. Like most mm -hmm. of the stuff that I write, I'd say I do 95% of it like by myself And then the last 5% that changes when I send out the report to like a couple dozen different people, that mm -hmm. last few percent probably 10x is my understanding of the topic. It makes the, and makes the reports significantly better at that point. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It just like makes a huge difference mm -hmm. that last little bit. Yeah. For those who don't know John, uh, John is uh, one of the most prolific technical writers in crypto. You know, you've written about... Um, Ethereum's roadmap and rollups and um, sequencer decentralization and MEV and you know, so many different topics. Um, and so you're saying when we read one of your reports, then we are basically going through the, we're basically replaying your thought process while you were exploring these topics on your own? Yeah, more, more or less. Like I, I think it's actually helped me a lot um, as far as being able to write decently that I've come into crypto pretty recently and just don't have a lot of background. 
I think it is just inherently really hard to write about a complex topic and like mm -hmm. explain it simply if you just know this thing too well and have like a really dense understanding in one area and then what you write comes off as very academic and for experts and like in a specific way um, it's much easier to write explain it like I'm five type stuff on complicated stuff. If you have to like when I'm writing it, I'm just learning it from beginning to end. That is 90% of the reason that I write stuff is it is entirely selfish and personal. It is because that is just like how I learn the thing. Uh, I th like I think it's just so helpful for people to try to do more of that. Like for me personally, mm -hmm. that has been the majority of how I've learned everything in crypto. Are you using ChatGPT or any other you know, um, models yet in your writing? No. Okay. No, never. Um, I hear a lot now that um, actually the rise of AI and the kind of the you know de democratization of the availability of it um, is making writing a less important skill. I feel like that may not be something that that you would agree with, right? So I, it might lessen the impact of putting it out there, um, particularly if like if ChatGPT. Chat GPT can start to write, you know, something like I'm writing, then yeah, less yeah. people will read what I'm writing because there'll be better stuff out there. Mm -hmm. So that certainly seems plausible um, mm -hmm. in the longer term. That being said, if I had to, at the end of all of my reports, just like click delete, light them on fire and throw them away, I'd still write every single report and do them the exact same way. Uh, the the getting to put it out there and have people read it and meet people is like the extra bonus. That's really nice. 90 to 95% of it is just do the work to learn it yourself. Um, that is the only way to force yourself mm -hmm. to make sure that like I I have looked at everything on this topic that I possibly want to look at and processed it and like look through all the holes and put it together. Um, yeah, ChatGPT will probably be better than me at writing one day, but mm -hmm. just yeah. reading what it writes is not going to help you learn the thing in the same way as just like actually just going through the motions yourself. Like you, you've got to go through yeah. the motions at least personally. Yeah, for me, um, writing is thinking. That's why. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I can't think without writing. Like if I have to think through some topic in a structure, it doesn't matter at all what it is. It's whether it's personal or it's professional, it can be any number of topics. I, I pr probably write on the order of like 20 to 30 documents per day and they can be very short, right? Mm. Um, but it's just like putting different ideas on paper and connecting them together. There's this idea, of course, I mean, now, by now it's, 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 um, almost like a part of, of pop culture and right? this idea of like the second brain, um, having this, you know, um, archive where you put all of your notes and, um, you can connect them to each other, right? You, you kind of write these small atomic notes that are self-sustaining and then you link them to each other. And by, by the process of actually linking two notes together, you also start linking them in your head and it's, it's, it's crazy how that can form kind of new, you know, neural connections and, uh, and kind of increase the neuroplasticity of your brain. So yeah, I would, I would say, you know, writing is the, the number one important part of learning. I mean, there is a reason why I want to talk about this topic. I mean, you, you actually joined crypto relatively recently, right? Um, mm -hmm. when, when was it? Uh, so I started in crypto, it was like right at the end of March, uh, just over a year ago. So 2022, 
That's when I started so insane. Crypto. Yeah. <laughs> I basically yeah. I basically started reading about it um, over the year prior. Like I was uh-huh. part of I was part of the COVID generation of crypto. Uh, yeah. pri- prior to COVID, my I just never looked at crypto seriously. It was just my only experience with it was uh, friends who were really bad at day trading on it and managing to lose money and like bull markets mm-hmm. on it. And I just kind of ignored this thing. Uh, then like early COVID was when I started to pay attention to it. And then over 2021, by the end of the year, it's just like an obsessive hobby. Um, so then I quit to go finally go do it. In 22. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's funny how some people can, you know, just come into crypto and drink from the fire hose, you know, an insane amount and, 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 and kind of go to the top very quickly. And you are definitely one of them. I think I was one of them as well when I joined. And that's why I see so many parallels because I think we have a very similar style of learning and it's one that has a lot of feedback loops built in, at least for myself, right? Because when I learn, I write. And when I write, it allows me to publish. And when I publish, it allows me to A, you know, get a big dopamine boost, which is one thing, but it also allows you to build, you know, a brand and a network. And having that network, you were saying earlier, like 90% of your learning happens when you send your article to a dozen different people after it's already done. And having this network allows you to do that, right? It allows you to ask any question to anyone. And for me, my I think my research process is a little different. Like I schedule like interviews with people way earlier and ask them questions way earlier um, because I'm not as technical as you, I, I think primarily. And right? so I, I can't chew through these topics, you know, as far myself as you can. So I have to ask earlier. And so network for me, was always super important. And that's why this feed, this like this, this virtual cycle between, you know, learning and writing and publishing and network and then repeat. Um, this is basically like what my, my whole uh, kind of crypto career was, was built on in, in the first couple of years. Yeah. Like the, the, this is realistically the whole reason that I got into crypto and the, like, at least as a job, uh, it was a lot of fun throughout 2021 is like clearly a fun hobby. I just wasn't at the, okay, I'm going to go quit my real job and go do this magic internet money job for mm-hmm. like the first year. The main that, thing that did convince me is that I started to realize a little bit of like what we're talking about now, like kind of gets to is I think the main thing that particularly as a new person that like makes you able to like get by reasonably well in crypto it's not like a background of 10 years of experience and a depth of existing technical knowledge and whatnot. It's honestly just understanding how to like make the process work in your favor of just like understanding the workflow of particularly for a field that like there's just so much like there's always just too much information. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that is going to get you to say on top of that is not 10 years of pre-existing knowledge. It's understanding just like what is the process that works for me to be able to process this um, and, and focus like my time and resources in the right place and like work on that and get ahead on that thing quickly. Um, and that's just like a personal process and like using the people around you, that kind of thing. It's not like any existing technical knowledge for the most part, um, which is like it makes it a lot of fun. As someone who is coming in is just completely new, you legitimately can come in and just like actually be pretty good at what you're doing, which is just like a lot of fun if you focus in the right places. Mm. How do you do that? How do you pick on a topic and then focus on that? So uh, sometimes it's like oddly obvious to me. Like the, the first big report that I did um, 
it was shocking to me that it just didn't exist. Uh, it was like it was like right after I had started at Delphi at like the beginning of last year, and it was like the big Ethereum report. Yeah. Um, that was the thing that I wanted to do right away. I like I had just joined crypto. It was very clear that okay, Ethereum is clearly the most important thing that like everyone is building around, everyone is building on top of. And yet it also seems really clear that when you speak to like 99.9% of people, the roadmap is just too big at this point for like most people to fit it inside of like one brain. It's kind of scattered in different places. Like, oh, if I understand the MEV side of things really well, I probably like don't understand what's this whole new dank sharding thing. Mm -hmm. And like it was kind of scattered all over the place. As someone who just like I came in from the outside, this is the most important thing. And there's no way for anyone to just like have a comprehensive understanding of this in one place. Like it was the thing that I knew that I wanted to read really, really badly. And I was like, this is helpful for a lot of other people if I'm coming in and it's the most important thing and I really want to read this thing. Like it, it was it was that it was like, this is the thing that I would have loved to have in front of me right now. Like it was very simple. It was that. Um, so that one felt like very obvious to me. I, I would say from there going forward, some of them kind of just like naturally follow on like what you're already working on. Um, and that's when it becomes easier to like find things that are on the edge of uh, like what is the interesting new idea. Like you're probably going to be more likely to find that if you are a like quote unquote expert, whatever focus mm -hmm. in an area. Like the next new interesting NFT PFP project, whatever that pops up, I'm not going to be the person who finds it because I don't understand the first thing about any of those. Um, but to the extent that, you know, there's a interesting new idea in restaking or MEV mm -hmm. or whatever it is, or shared sequencing, like I'm reasonably likely going to be one of the first people to like be on top of that kind of thing. Cause it just naturally follows from what you've been doing. Um, but sometimes it's just like the very obvious thing, like the Ethereum report. It was like, is I would love to read this. It's yeah. the most important thing. There's nothing on this. Uh, it was like shocking to me didn't exist. And it's funny, right? Because an, when an outsider comes in and learns about crypto, they can see these things that are very obvious to an outsider, but not to the people who are already in crypto. And I mean, that there should be a certain report is one is one example of that. Another, I actually had the same realization when I came into crypto and I thought, I mean, why is nobody talking about how kind of this whole Bitcoin and Ethereum system, I mean, it's basically all a social contract between different people, you know, and the, the, the technology is just an instantiation of this social contract and this community. And there there's clearly the social layer that you know decides what should happen to the protocol and also when there's a bug that um, kind of determines you know how it should be fixed and if there's a fork it determines which chain is canonical and all of these things and it was like when i came into crypto still in in 2017 you know it was heresy to say that there's a social layer in bitcoin i mean and if you think about it today like to anybody who comes in new and they just look at the facts you know that are laid out it's so obvious right and so i i felt almost like a fraudster you know just like writing this stuff down you know because it was so obvious um and you know that the narrative also behind you know that, that kind of make up the community and, and the composition of the community can change and that way like different narratives can dominate and that was kind of the other big article that i wrote in the beginning visions of bitcoin with nick carter and yeah some of the stuff was so obvious that it's it's really funny that that it doesn't exist yeah it's, it's a kind of blindness that you develop when you're too deep in crypto and that's why 
renewal of communities and like fresh blood coming in from the outside is so important. The other thing that I wanted to dive in, John, is, is how do you how do you do the research process for an article like, um, for example, the one that you wrote on Ethereum's roadmap? Because um, are you using are you working a lot with kind of primary sources or are you um, you know reading a lot of kind of secondary sources? Are you talking to people? Um, what what is your personal approach of working? I'd say the timing of some of it has changed since I started to now, thankfully. Um, like, it, I can just generally do them more quickly. Um, but, I mean, for the Ethereum one and the kind of one or two after that in particular, I would say the majority of it was go into a hole for a month um, and ignore everyone around me and try to ignore, like, every other responsibility I possibly have and just go into this thing and put all, like, get every last thing possibly checked. Um, I mean, for that, I was starting from absolute, like, literal explain it like I'm fives of to understand stuff like KZG commitments in there. Like, I was looking up what is a polynomial when I started that. I was like, oh, yeah, it's this <laughs> equation thing that, like, I remember learning in, like, high school or whatever. Just did wa literally watching, like, Khan Academy videos and stuff like that. So starting wow. from absolute ground up. Um, you end up with a thousand tabs open on your computer mm -hmm. and like that, I would say that is like the normal, what my computer actually looks like is Google doc on one side and just like a thousand tabs open on the other side. And it is just, this is everything that I need to go through on this topic. It will take me however long it takes me. And it is going through that and then just synthesizing and building as I go. Um, and then once you're most of the way of, okay, I've kind of checked the boxes, like thought through most of the stuff that I've possibly like that's out there and that I've gotten mm. to where I want to get to. There's always the edge of the map of, okay, I understand the stuff that's out there, but the stuff that makes it really interesting and like adds that extra understanding is talking to the people at the end who to the stuff that probably isn't written down yet. Um, and is like kind of still floating around in their heads. And like, yeah. that's the stuff that makes it really interesting is like having all of those conversations at the end of the report. Um, so I have a very similar workflow now. I would just say it's generally a little bit shorter usually. Um, where usually I won't need to like hold myself off for a month or so to make one of those reports now. Like usually it'll be like a week or two or something like that. Um, but I, I very much split up my time into when I'm trying to when I'm doing one of the reports, it is I will spend 90 percent of my time on that thing for a week or whatever it is um, and just try to just ignore everything around me in the world outside. Mm -hmm. And then the next few weeks I go back to, OK, I have a job and I need to do all these other things mm -hmm. that I was ignoring for the last couple of weeks. And I was like, go on those. Mm -hmm. And then after a few weeks, I just have an itch to like, OK, I want to sit down and just like go all the way in on something else and then just like pick the next thing. What did you do in crypto that you are most proud of? Uh, it was the first Vitalik one, uh, like the Vitalik, <laughs> it was like, it was uh -huh. that, it was the, it was the, the Vitalik quote tweet on the, like the Ethereum report that I did. Oh, um, you're, you're most proud yes. not of the report, but of the quote tweet. Yes. It, yeah, and okay. th that is still the like pin thing on my Twitter yeah, is yeah, that, yeah. uh, like particularly at the time that I was the most proud of was I'd been in crypto for a month and uh -huh. like, I like I mean, like all of the people that like uh, that I was talking to about that, like they they were like celebrities to me, like at that point, like yeah. in the ner in the nerdiest way possible, like those were the celebrities to me. Um, so having been in crypto for a month and like I just spent a month on this, you know, big Ethereum report, and then Vitalik retweeted it and was like, "Oh, this is really good." Yeah, I, I was I was rather excited after that. Um, that like was that was definitely the most me. excited I was. Um, yeah. 
especially like right after starting. Um, yeah, I was super excited. It was a very, it is a very good meme. I, re I recommend everybody to, to check it out. <laughs> so I want to kick it into second gear here. Okay, we we, we, we covered a lot of kind of the, the personal. I think we, we, we are getting a sense of, of who you are and what you're interested in. Um, and now I would like to talk a little bit about um, the topic of this podcast. So we got together because we both love thinking about crypto infrastructure. And that's, of course, a very broad term. Um, so I would like you to, you know, just map it out with me. Like what, what, what are the things, um, what are the key areas in crypto infrastructure, um, that exists today, um, uh, that you are excited about? Sure. Yeah. There's kind of a few, I'd say big buckets that most stuff falls into and the boundaries of all of those things are really loose and they kind of all overlap with each other. Uh, one obvious one, particularly for you, is the whole MEV slash supply chain. And it gets fuzzy because there is still no definition of what MEV is and everything is kind of MEV or not. And we're not really sure. Um, so a lot of the protocol level, like uh, thinking about like Enshrine PBS, like, OK, how do we address this thing? Mm. Um, obviously, for you guys with Suave um, over at Flashbots, like uh, trying to approach it very differently than everyone else's today. Um, and then kind of applying a lot of that logic over to rollups. Um, is a lot of what I'm spending my time on right now. Um, so thinking about, okay, we've got all these new blockchains that we've kind of decided, like this is the way that everyone is going to you know, use blockchains for the most part in the future is kind mm -hmm. of the Ethereum vision. And it's still super early stages of, okay, what do these things look like? Like, should they look like Ethereum when they start thinking about decentralization and proposer builder separation and whatnot? Or should they look just completely different and have completely different trade-offs? Mm -hmm. um, I lean more in the latter camp. Um, but like that is a super interesting area and that like obviously plays in with MEV because if you try to, you know, do sequencer decentralization and you just ignore MEV, well, then you're going to end up with all the same problems that all the blockchains had like a few years ago. And then you end up with all the same problems that Ethereum had. Um, so that is a super interesting area. Obviously, the scaling that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the last large bucket, I'd say broadly, is kind of around the consensus and security of that. So in particular, a lot of around staking, um, liquid, restake, uh, liquid staking, obviously, for yourself, and then restaking, where we're still trying to decide if this is like the best thing ever or if it's going to break everything, still mm -hmm. TBD. Um, so that is kind of a whole fun area. Um, yeah, and all of those like fit together very well. And like, that's another thing that like, again, makes crypto fun. It's like, you kind of have to piece all of these different things together to like understand mm -hmm. one thing, like decentralizing the sequencer. It's not one problem. It's like six different problems from everywhere. And then you kind of like try to put mm -hmm. them all together, which makes it a lot of fun. Um, which of those are like, are you thinking the most about you think right now um, spending your time on? I I mean, I think, different? I think the most about the, the MEV slash the transaction supply chain, um, because I, I spend most of my time working on, on Flashbots, but um, it, it, it's like you say, right? They are all so closely connected. So there's basically no way to not to, to work in MEV and not think about rollups. Why? Because rollups also need their sequencing needs met, right? So they, um, and I want to talk to you about this in a minute here, but they, they rollups today are you know, quite early and they're still quite centralized. They have a lot of their training wheels on. Um, and they are looking to take them off one by one. And, and, and one of these requires basically decentralizing you know, their leader election mechanism, their 
and whether they want a form of proposal builder separation or not. And <clears throat> thinking about what is the best mechanism for them, uh, whether they should, you know, what they should adopt, how, we, how they can become compatible with the future MEV supply chain. I think these are definitely topics that we're thinking um, a lot about at Flashbots. Um, we recently put out a, a, a job posting as well for, for a layer two researcher and, and engineer. Um, so, and then of course there's the whole, you know, staking area. I think, um, Lido is a, of course, a, a protocol that, um, you know, is, is the biggest, um, liquid staking protocol and, um, liquid staking is the most dominant form of staking, I believe, um, to the point where there will only be liquid staking protocols in the future. Um, and it will completely crowd out regular staking and, the kind of the, the, the market dynamics of, of liquid staking. And I actually just, um, did an episode, um, on that with Mike, uh, over at, at Bellcraft, um, uh, a good friend of, of both of us. And, um, we talked about kind of the market dynamics of liquid staking and whether it's, uh, you know, what, what kind of market outcomes there may be. And I was arguing that this market has a ton of network effect. And, um, I think it's very likely that there will be a winner take most, outcome. And so when you are here in this, um, in this field, so we're talking about core infrastructure. So Ethereum couldn't work without staking protocols at scale. Yet we say, this is an area where there's actually like competitive dynamics that dictate that there will be one big winner. What does that mean for Ethereum, right? And that raises so many follow-up questions. So my personal view is that we basically need to make sure that the best staking protocol wins and that staking protocol is as decentralized as possible and as close to immutable trustless infrastructure as possible. Um, and that's the kind of, I think it's a very similar line of logic that also attracted me to Flashbots because block building and MEV and kind of, you know, this whole like, I have the thesis that the mempool and the auction for preferences that come into crypto and then get turned into blocks and executed on different chains that, um, that this will also turn into its own shared infrastructure layer, very similar to liquid staking in that sense. And so the, the challenges in both are actually, it's not just they are connected in the sense that, you know, liquid staking providers are kind of the biggest customers of, uh, kind of the MEV supply chain. Um, it's also that they face very similar structural um, challenges that we have to think about. Yeah. Okay, so I think that gives us a, a pretty good overview. I think just starting with these three topics, MEV, roll-ups and scaling and, and staking, we loosely discussed how they relate together. And in, in crypto infrastructure, everything is related together. Why is it that you care so much about infrastructure? What is it about this? Why not, you know, why not NFTs? Why not, you know, building applications on crypto? Why not identity or DAOs? What is it about this that that kind of, you know, scratches your itch? So a lot of that was probably personal. Uh, a little bit of regretting my previous career choice and this giving me the chance to look at something more technical. Uh, so like I, I had a pretty traditional finance type background. Like I did economics in college and then I was working in finance for the last few years. 
there were parts of it that I liked, but I definitely had meaningful regret that I didn't do more of a technical background, um, that I didn't do something along the lines of engineering that like I had seriously considered. And then I kind of just like followed what all my friends in college were doing for the most part. Um, so a lot of the infrastructure stuff appealed to me in particular because that's just where a lot of the more technical side of things just naturally came in. Um, getting the chance to finally understand like, hey, this is how a computer actually works. Uh, like a lot of that side was just very interesting to me on just like the simple technical level. Whereas a lot of the NFT stuff was like, it was fun. Like uh, that was like hobby kind of stuff for me, but it wasn't what I was going to get super excited and like wake up at. 8 a.m. on a weekend and like start reading about uh, like a lot mm -hmm. of that was the technical stuff that I felt like I'd kind of missed out on for a number of years. So a lot of it was just personal interest. Um, the other part of it was also just honestly where most of the interesting innovation like has been over the past year and a half has by and large been on the infrastructure side. Um, so like I like I came from a finance background. So a lot of the DeFi stuff was that was what was super interesting to me after Bitcoin was that was the first thing I, like Bitcoin was what got me in the simple macro stuff. And the first stuff that I got really interested in was DeFi as like a hobby kind of thing, because like it's just yeah. a natural. This makes sense. Um, but I didn't want to go work in it until I got into the infrastructure side of things. And a, a lot of it in particular is a lot of DeFi over the past, call it, year and a half, two years. I, I don't think that there's been nearly as much rapid change in innovation as there has been compared to the infrastructure side of things. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think that it has just naturally been significantly more interesting, like, on the infrastructure side. And while I think that a lot of really simple DeFi primitives are going to be incredibly successful in the long run, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of them are incredibly simple DeFi and they're just like inherently less interesting at this point to spend time on for me of like, what is the tweak to this decentralized exchange versus the last one that makes it like a little more capital efficient. That has just like naturally been a little bit less exciting to me versus the infrastructure side of things over the past two years has been like, hey, what if uh, everything that we built over the last like five years was just like all wrong and we build this all completely differently? Like that is basically what rollups and this whole like scaling roadmap <laughs> is. It's like, hey, like, sorry, all of that stuff that we said for like years about, you know, everyone was like, oh, we need a new consensus algorithm. And like that makes yeah, us more scalable yeah, yeah. <laughs> or we're going to do execution charting and whatnot. Um, like rollups. And this whole kind of vision was very much as I was coming in and like it was at the point where it was really starting to become like, OK, this looks like the direction. And it was just a completely new thing that was just like this is not what anyone was talking about years ago. Um, so like naturally, it's just, hey, you know, what if we rip everything out and start again from scratch and like build it completely differently? Like that's super exciting. Um, and that just has so many follow on effects. Um, which is just like, it makes it a lot more interesting just from a personal perspective, like to spend time on when everything is just constantly changing. Yeah. I think it was the same for me. I think I, I came into crypto and I saw, you know, Bitcoin proved crypto to me, but then DeFi proved that crypto is more than Bitcoin in the sense that, you know, you can actually build useful things with smart contracts and you can actually build really cool and really powerful applications. But then when I looked at these applications a bit more closely, I thought they are still extremely limited in what we can do, right? And so this actually sent me down then the infrastructure rabbit hole. I thought, well, you can't really build, you know, a competitive DEX while there's still MEV, you know, while transactions are not private and not efficiently routed and, and all of these things, for example, right? And so um, that, that, that was one of the rabbit holes definitely for me, you know, in terms of it doesn't, you know, we can't have people build applications 
on these systems that we want to rival existing CFI applications if we don't first solve the infrastructure problems. And I mean, MEV is a huge one, um, scalability is a huge one, and security was another one, right? So I think all three of these problems, MEV, roll-up, staking, um, if we don't like, if if we don't solve any of them, like if there's any of them that we don't solve, crypto will not succeed, I think. And so we need to be, you know, pushing the frontier on all three of them at the same time. Um, if yeah, if we want crypto to to kind of be a place where you can build really really good applications. In terms of yeah. If you have a follow-up question or something, always jump, feel free to jump in. Nice. I was going to say, I, I think that some of them we could have pretty simple solutions to and like still get by, even if it's not the perfect solution that we want. And like, I think it will still be an improvement that's worth making. Uh, but yeah, in, in general, we do have to get all of them like reasonably right. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we have some great applications already, right? I think um, yeah. like a Unisop, uh, like a Mercadao, Aave, um, I think... These are all working really well, uh, in spite of their simplicity. Um, yeah, but I, I want more. <laughs> you know, I just, I just want more. And so, okay, um, let's walk me through a little bit. Let's let's zoom into one of these topics. Why don't we choose rollups? So, walk me through where we are right now. Uh, what is the state of rollups? Uh, where are they in kind of their adoption, um, but also in terms of their decentralization roadmaps? What steps have they taken and which steps have they yet to take? Yeah, this is the part that I'm excited for. Uh, finally dig in on a topic. Uh, so, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time on this lately on rollups. Um, and so I and particularly on the decentralization stuff uh, and Broadly, I would still say that they're a lot earlier than I think a lot of us would like them to be, particularly on the decentralization side of things. It like it definitely has been slower than I mean, certainly that I expected it from what you would have heard uh, coming into crypto a couple of years ago, where like I, I remember that was like when I was coming in, a lot of it was uh, like ZK EVMs are like about to be here. Like the, like this is the year uh, like they're right around the corner that kind of thing was always just like push back, push back, push back. Like now they're kind of here, um, but like was certainly slower to get to that over the past couple of years. And now like you're seeing a lot of the same thing on the decentralization side where it's been, oh yeah, like we're going to have a decentralized sequencer like ASAP. Uh, like that has been a conversation <laughs> for a while. And a lot of it realistically in my mind is uh, like, that's probably a lower priority as it should be for most of these rollups because I don't think that sequencer decentralization or, you know, a certain proving system makes a gigantic difference when the biggest problem is still like who holds the upgrade keys to these contracts. Mm. Um, if you have a multi-sig controlling this thing, then obviously, you know, the all the other details are like kind of a lot less important. Um, so seeing rollups that are finally transitioning on that to like, okay, we have a much broader multi-sig that's like outside of the team itself. Um, you need a high threshold of it to make any changes. Um, but like that is still the most important thing in my mind, like by far, is just like actually handing over the control and figuring out like what we're going to do with this. Like I feel like most of the sequencer decentralization stuff, like most people haven't done it yet, but I think it is in large part because of prioritization of 
I don't think that you actually need to decentralize the sequencer if your rollup is implemented well. So I think it's just mm -hmm. a much lower priority. I think a lot of the decentralization on the, you know, how do we actually control the contract itself of like having arbitrary upgrades. That's not a question of importance. That is a like that is very important and should be done ASAP. That is a question of, I still think that there's like a lot of open area and a lot of open thoughts on like what is the right way to do this. Like I think that you, like there's a reasonable answer that all of these contracts need to be immutable and there's like there's no acceptable outcome where they're upgradable. Like all of these roll-up contracts need to be immutable. I think that is like a reasonable position to take. I think it's also a reasonable position to take on the other side of like, you know, token holders should fully control these things or some other complete governance mechanism. Like that is the direction that I think things will go in is like there will be upgradability. Um, but then the question is like, okay, there's upgradability. Um, like, are you just going to have it be like token holder governance? And now, okay, now you just ended up in a situation where the majority of token holders can upgrade the contract. Um, so you start to have just like very difficult questions on that of, okay, if we do that, but like, what if we give them a really long delay? So they can't upgrade the contract anytime soon. Like, you know, it takes a month and in that time you could presumably exit from the rollup if you like, you don't like the changes. Um, obviously that's not like super ideal. And the question is obviously like, what if there's a bug in the contract? Mm -hmm. Like, do you, you know, do we need instant upgrades to be able to fix something like that? So like, these are very just thorny questions that like, uh, this is where I think a lot of time should be spent on is like, what is the governance and control side of rollups? As much as I've like loved spending time on shared sequencing and like all these other interesting like mechanism designs, like that is like the stuff that nerd snipes me. And I love talking about like, oh yeah, how do we get like atomic cross chain transactions using yeah. Suave in a shared sequencer? Like it's a ton of fun to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of the important questions though are actually on just the very simple fundamental questions of like who controls this role of like what is the governance of it should we have staking or not like how do like who is the person who kind of controls who's the sequencer has been a lot more of my conclusion as like I've worked on recent reports and like thought about it more is probably a meaningfully more important question than what is the exact sequencer mechanism that you have, you know, whether it's one sequencer or it's a consensus set of 10 or whatever it is. Um, I, like the, the person who controls it, that governance mechanism or a centralized company who just like holds the upgrade keys is like a much, much more important question in my mind. Um, like a, a lot of the kind of incentive and reason that people really want to decentralize the sequencer is like, okay, we want like real-time censorship resistance and we want to make sure that like, you know, you don't have monopolistic operators. The problem with that is, is just like decentralizing the sequencer, quote unquote, like doesn't actually fix that in my mind. Um, you could put a consensus set in there, but if you're governance token holders who control the rollup and like they set the rules and they pick who the sequencers are, they're going to be able to implement if they want monopolistic pricing or whatever rules they want such that like we filter different addresses like that like that is ultimately up to them um, sequencers just have a much much more kind of constrained role compared to like what we think of with layer one validators today it's like they do have so I, I think that much more of the focus needs to be on like how do we constrain their powers such that like even if it is literally one person who's doing this mm -hmm. we're totally fine with that as opposed to just like how do we rush to get this thing as quote unquote decentralized as possible with like many operators doing this thing? And then we just kind of throw it out there and like we assume it works because I think that there is generally going to always be active governance on these things. Um, and like I, I think that rollups should lean into that a lot. Like I do think that rollups need to make very different trade offs on thinking about like MEV compared to Ethereum. Um, like a lot of that stuff is going to look very different in my mind. Okay, that's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Okay. So, um, 
Okay, so I, I, okay, I want to zoom into one point first. So you were saying um, sequencer decentralization. This is not really a priority for rollups right now. Um, I would agree, I think, but it's not only not a priority, I think it's also very difficult. So even if you wanted to do it, it's not really clear how to do it in a decentralized way, because um, this is one thing I highlighted in like previous talks and such, but um, by having a centralized sequencer for so long that is operated by, you know, the kind of the these foundations or companies behind these rollups, they were able to give users A, incredibly low latency and B, privacy. And this is not something that you can just replicate in a decentralized setting. And so it, it is a big, it is a big challenge, like, right. So it, it, it kind of depends what trade-offs are you willing to make and also what technology is available. I think we're trying to get there with Suave, um, where we would have, you know, just kind of builders execute, builders run in inside trusted execution environments. And I, I think this is clearly like the most viable and pragmatic path, how you, you can decentralize the status quo. You know, you just take what currently runs in a centralized server and you put it into a TEE. Um, and if you want, you can also rotate, but that's almost like the easy part of the problem, right? Yeah. So particularly in the absence of like something like Suave is not yet live today. And I, I agree that decentralizing the sequencer, if we give ourselves the same constraints as something like Ethereum, I do think is a really difficult problem. Um, if you assume that this has to be a completely permissionless role and we can't trust any of them and all of that kind of, you know, the, the stuff that it makes sense for Ethereum to optimize for. I think if that is the optimization, then I think it's a very difficult problem. Um, I think that rollups are in a significantly safer place that it probably makes sense to make meaningfully more trade-offs in my mind on like the decentralization and trust side of things. Um, because uh, again, fundamentally, like these rollup sequencers just have a fundamentally very different trust requirement compared to Ethereum validators. Like it makes sense for us to optimize for Ethereum validators that we want to try at least to have this super long tail, permissionless, incredibly censorship resistant. The whole point mm -hmm. of rollups is they're already paying the layer one for those guarantees of enforcing censorship resistance and whatnot. So like yeah. the sequencer fundamentally doesn't give that anymore. So in my mind, they can make significantly more trade-offs and we can just pick, you know, we can have governance decide that like, hey, here are the 10 sequencers that we're picking or pick your number, whatever it is. Yeah. And we trust them. And we say, hey, you 10 sequencers, you do the same thing that like Arbitrum or Optimism was doing today of you guys run a private mempool and like we trust you to abide by that. And like you don't front run users. That is, a, that is a clear improvement from having one person do it today. Like, no, it's not Ethereum of it's a permissionless open validator set and whatnot. I don't think that that's going to be a practical goal for like most rollups, nor do I think it's necessary. Like, I think it's going to be difficult from an economic efficiency standpoint, like let alone just getting that many people to run this kind of network. I don't think it's necessary. Um, and then, quite frankly, like if you look at rollups today, mm -hmm. they don't want to give away that like that part of particularly fast confirmations and private mempools. Like, that's not going to be an acceptable thing for Arbitrum and Optimism to say in my mind of like, oh yeah, we decentralized the sequencer, and sorry, it's a public mempool now. And like, yeah no other options and like you get front run now in like a couple seconds uh, uh -huh. realistically though i think that you take a step in between there and you say like okay we governance decides like these are the people that we trust and if you act maliciously like you're out 
uh, like that is what governance needs to have the power to do. So if a sequencer does start acting uh, like out of term, then you boot them out. Yeah. Like that, like that's a very fundamentally different dynamic than Ethereum, where you know if Ethereum validators are censoring you, there's no other like chain that you can you know send a message to and be like, hey, force my transaction into this chain. Mm-hmm. Like if Ethereum is censoring you and like you're based on Ethereum, like you're then you're being censored. Like that is the whole point of rollups is they get to inherit that from Ethereum. If their sequencer starts to extract MEV. Sensor, I force an exit, like I, I, I bypass them and slash governance just kicks them out. Yeah. So like I think that they can make meaningfully more trade-offs, particularly today where we don't have this perfect world yet of, you know, this perfect private mempool with like something like Suave Envisions where I just kind of throw my order in there and it comes out the other side of, you know, everything is handled in between with privacy preserving technology. Um, like that doesn't exist yet for these rollups. And like I think particularly in that period, like it makes sense for them to make trade-offs in that interim and have trusted operators that like governance does have meaningful control over. Okay. So I, I think I, I hear you say we have on the one hand a chain like Ethereum and it has specific uh, requirements or goals, you know, and these are to be a very neutral, very kind of censorship resistant base layer. And so it it has a kind of uh, way of decentralizing or it, it, it has a way of selecting its validators in like form of PBS and like a mempool policy and so on that allows for these things um, to work, right? And that's one of the reasons why privacy today, like front-running protection is so difficult on Ethereum today, why you know the block time has to be very high. Because again, like you want to be very geographically diverse entities to be in consensus with each other and you don't want latency to become the dominant factor in who makes money in validation, right? And But then on the other end, you have these Cosmos chains um, or app chains where one application is basically its own chain and they have their own validators and maybe they share it with someone else, but um, they have a governance. And unlike Ethereum, they are not too shy to say, um, our governance can decide whatever we want, right? It's like um, we have no problem slashing someone socially, um, uh, which would not happen in Ethereum today, right? Um, so I think even, I mean, the DAO fork was a very long time ago and, you know, kind of reverting that state transition, I think already that's like proven extremely controversial and will not happen again. But these for these app chains, it's, it's quite common to say, for example, on a chain like Osmosis, to say, if we see any of you validators front-running a user, then we will slash you or whoever you delegated to, right? And I think DYDX actually came out the other day on Twitter as well with their new version. And they said, uh, by the way, guys, we have a solution to MEV. It's social slashing. We are monitoring um, the chain. And if we see anyone any validator misbehaving, um, we're going to slash them. And I don't know. I mean, I, I hear you. Okay. So like your thesis is rollups, they are already quite decentralized because they post their data and their proofs to Ethereum. And so they cannot make any invalid state transitions. Also, they have these bridge contracts and users can um, always get a transaction mined um, through the bridge, like through Ethereum layer one. Okay. So that's your position. Um, and you think that makes it okay, basically, for rollups to go with the kind of the more cosmosy route of, okay, do you have any concerns 
that like a do you think this is a middle step or do you think this is a potential end game for rollups as well uh, I definitely view it as a middle step, and I think it's very possible it's an end step. Particularly, not I wouldn't say for all of them. To be fair, like I, I certainly do think that there's going to be a place for rollups that want to be on the far end of the spectrum of like possibly they do have an immutable contract, and we just want to have this super decentralized permissionless mechanism. That makes sense. I also think that there is going to be a place for the absolute extreme end on the other side of. We have a decentralized exchange. We run a centralized sequencer. We do, you know, private mempool, first in, first out. Like they might even do co-location rights, whatever it is. Um, the the thing is, like that's not a that's not a replacement for Ethereum. That's a replacement for Robinhood, uh, mm-hmm. the way it works today. Like there, there. I think that there is going to be even in the end game, like stuff on that far end of the spectrum where this works because hey, if like unlike something like Robinhood. Or like using Coinbase as the simple example, like there's a market difference between I use Coinbase, the centralized exchange, and mm-hmm. I use a rollup where base, uh, like Coinbase is the centralized sequencer for this. Like if that is properly implemented, Coinbase is not custodying my funds anymore. There's, there's no possibility anymore for this exchange to be literally just taking my money and sending it to a hedge fund and like doing whatever with my money. Like that's fundamentally not possible anymore. They do have the power to, okay, they can censor you on a very short time span or start front running you. I, like, I'm willing to put trust slash I think most people will realistically in a large company to be accountable for they're not going to do this kind of just unrealistic, very short term profit seeking behavior of like, yeah, they could start front running all of their users. like. They could. It seems highly unlikely that they're going to do that if the result of that is everyone just leaves the roll up and like, okay, this business is dead now and they made a few dollars like front running people. Like anyone can do that in theory, sure. Um, like that is why it's it's significantly more important for for those types of use cases to be viable, to have all of the backup type stuff in place. For these systems to have like real user opt-out, like there has to be the exit button right away of Mm -hmm. I am a user, I get my money out, slash if there's a malicious sequencer, we have governance upgrades on this thing and we just immediately, you know, goodbye. Like that person is gone. So like having that opt-out is the fundamental thing that is like a large difference in my mind. Like that's the thing that makes a lot of traditional tech entrenched. It is because they are just built, their whole business model is built around the idea of like, how do I make sure that people basically cannot leave my platform possibly? Mm-hmm. I'm okay with a person who's like literally running the box of operating this thing being like kind of centralized if it is fundamentally the opposite premise of they basically have no power over me and I have like free opt out at any point in time. I think there's going to be a place for both of them, but yeah. Is that realistic though? I mean, a rollup never exists in a vacuum, right? Like if we talk about optimism or arbitrum, I mean, what they've been doing, I mean, one reason why they have been launching so early and with their training wheels on, they've been using these centralized sequencers to provide users really good user experience is because they want to build an early, they want to gain an early advantage in building that network effect. So isn't it unrealistic to say that users can leave at any time? For example, you know, if the Arbitrum ecosystem becomes very popular. Isn't that at that point like saying I'm going to leave Ethereum? Uh, I mean, it depends. I mean, it could be difficult if it's a place that you like to use, but on a fundamental level, I mean, like there's no like, I mean, 
there's no comparison between something like that and something like Twitter, basically, where like that is the whole point of it's really hard to bootstrap any kind of decentralized social media because I fundamentally cannot carry over my network to somewhere else. It's like you are going to start from scratch. Yeah. Like using Arbitrum, like, yeah, I have to move to another roll up. But I mean, your assets are your assets. You could sell them. You could move them. You could go deploy this thing on another chain like that. That is just like, yes, I mean, there's a minor the user has to literally do something. Um, but it, it, if it is a very clear and easy opt out of like, I own all my own funds, I mm -hmm. own my data, et cetera, for like whatever this use case is, like that is a clear opt out that like keeps operators in check in my mind. And like that, that's what actually prevents the more monopolistic type activities in my mind, rather than saying like, we have a decentralized sequencer and then all of a sudden like they're going to behave. Like you could have a decentralized sequencer if you're governance for your rollup is run by token holders who just want to extract a bunch of value, well, then they're going to increase the prices and try to extract value. The thing that will keep them in check is, okay, can users actually opt out of the system immediately? And hey, we can go do the exact same thing, like right over there on the other rollup and we just go move over. Like that, that's what actually keeps it in check in my mind. Mm -hmm. So how would this play out then? Um, so let's say we have, you know, governance, whitelists. So right now we have one centralized sequencer, right? Okay. So let's take it to the next step. Maybe there's three centralized sequencers. Would you envision that these sequencers outsource their block building or is it something that they do internally? Like, will there be PBS? If yes, will it be permissioned PBS, which we've never seen, by the way? Um, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah, having some form of PBS auction is one of the clearest things that I think they need to do, regardless of whether they have a centralized sequencer or a decentralized sequencer. Like, this is already a problem today for centralized sequencers that they should be running some form of auction. Like, you don't want to end up in the place where rollups are already in today. Of, there's no way for me to express my preferences. Everything is private first, and like all the problems that everyone saw with the Arbitrum sequencer, uh, like in recent Spam. months, like. Yeah. yeah, like this is the obvious conclusion if you do private first and first out and you have like no way to express a preference over, hey, I want to be the top of the block, I want to get in fast, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so in my mind, there certainly needs to be, you can have this, you know, trusted mempool that the sequencer runs on the side and like we have a block and they also say like we're running a PBS auction if you want to bid for the top of the block or whatever it is. You could bid for that um, slash other preferences. They just won't be able to see the user orders, assuming that the sequencer keeps those trusted orders private, um, which is effectively what I mean. Block builders, what services like Flashbots protects and uh, MevShare are like trying to do is there. There is a there is an amount of trust in there today on like mm -hmm. one operator to keep it private, and like you'd be trusting some of the sequencers. And, like hopefully, obviously, that gets more decentralized over time. Um, but in my mind, that is like a very clear improvement over what we are doing today still, um, where we have a number of operators and they're like actually accountable to governance rather than we have one operator and the team who deployed this thing like decides who that operator is. Uh, and like we're getting towards that stage of like governance having more power and being able to decide. And like I do think that that is going to be the natural next step of we have governance decides on like these are the operators that we trust. They will very intentionally pick. We can pick, you know, a geographically distributed, you know, set of sequencers. Like they start to do the kind of thing that like someone like mm -hmm. Lido is doing, hopefully, of like we can very as like and this is one of the problems with proof of stake without any form of like delegation like someone like Lido in between. Um, is if you just do assume if you just assume that liquid staking doesn't exist, uh, which obviously it approaches like taking everything over but like if you just do delegated proof of stake by itself without that like most people are going to pick like hey i'm just going to give my person like the biggest validator i trust them and like you yeah. end up with everyone giving it to like the biggest two or three people in the same way that like lido alleviates that under the hood 
of, you know, hey, we can purposely pick. We pick a bunch of ge geographically distributed operators very intentionally, which users would not pick if we left the choice like to themselves. Governance yeah. could do the exact same thing here of like, yeah, it probably doesn't make sense for them to pick 10 sequencers that are all operating in the US and like using the same like AWS center. Like that would probably be a bad idea. They should probably very intentionally pick, you know, we want 10 or 20 operators or whatever that are very intentionally geo-distributed that are using different infrastructure mm -hmm. and that we keep them accountable to that. Like it, you actually end up with, that's why it's interesting. Like people view the like proof of stake, permissionless, decentralized, like it sounds nice. I, I think most of the economic forces, if you just like let them run out like that, end up more centralized than if you had this quote unquote like POA or proof of governance or whatever you want to call it. Like we very intentionally pick these are the people that like we want to be running this thing. And like that's the kind of process like LIDAR runs under the hood. Um, and this is the interesting part. Uh, like this is what I was starting to like tweet about a little bit the other day. I was like, mm -hmm. uh, Sonny had tweeted out um, from Osmosis, uh, yeah. uh, like proof of stake was a mistake. <laughs> um, that we should just do like POA, like let governance pick. Um, was that his point? Hmm? Was that his point? Was he was it was he saying that you know we should do POA or was he saying that we should go back to proof of work? Oh yeah, it was for POA. It was oh, for okay. like we should just let governance pick operators. Um, and this is where like th this is where I think we'll have some interesting debate on this. Is so for something like Ethereum, I don't agree with that. Um, Ethereum needs to maximize for, we need a completely permissionless like way for people to join this validator set. So like that makes sense in my mind. We need proof of stake to do that because inherently if you rely on governance to pick these people, like that is the exact opposite of what Ethereum is optimizing for. Ethereum does not want, we pick a set of operators and we have like centralized ish governance that's trying to manage all these people and is very active governance and it's not permissionless to join. Like that's the exact opposite of what Ethereum should be doing. Like obviously it doesn't yeah. make sense. They need proof of stake. Um, the question in my mind that I'm starting to increasingly think is like actually very viable is for rollups, is there any need for us to do proof of stake um, at all mm -hmm. for these types of constructions where if we're saying that governance can do this process themselves, um, because like this is where it'll be interesting is like, it depends on what what rollups decide to do with governance. Because if, you, if you're a rollup and you decide that like, hey, we're immutable and we wanna be like Ethereum, like we're gonna burn the keys, no upgrade in the contract, and realistically, everyone is stuck to the contract and like we basically have no governance. You probably want like a decentralized permissionless mechanism like proof of stake, throw it out there. And like mm -hmm. that kind of works because you don't have active governance to like keep selecting these validators. My general opinion is that most rollups are on the other end of the spectrum of we just need to figure out better governance than like multi-sig upgrade keys. It's the type of stuff that optimism is experimenting with where like we have two houses and there's different forms of identity and like there is a real governance process. That governance process, in my mind, can manage a set of sequencers in the way that like Lido picks delegates mm -hmm. under the hood. So then the question is, if we're optimism like or some other rollup, and we actually implement a robust governance mechanism where you know we have multiple houses, we have interesting forms of identity, whatever it is, and we're able to confidently pick like, hey, here are the thirty geographically distributed sequencers that we like. What is the reason at that point to implement proof of stake if? It seems in their benefit to actually keep the set closed because they want to trust them to enforce certain things. If you implement proof of stake, my assumption is whenever you implement proof of stake, liquid staking tokens like becomes 100%. Like we will just approach like 100%. Like it is better than delegating your stake natively for like very obvious reasons. So the difference between the two scenarios is if you implement proof of stake, you end up with Lido or someone like that. They end up effectively running all of the stake 
and mm-hmm. they pick the they pick the delegates for you under the hood, and they presumably do a good job of picking these geographically distributed validators and whatnot. Um, the obvious problem with that, which Lido is looking to solve, is uh, the like principal agent problem with this of like, okay, now you have uh, LST governance that's picking all of our delegates. Like, this is our chain; we want to pick the delegates. So, to make that viable, you need something like. Uh, the dual governance that like in my mind uh, otherwise this just like I think it's crazy like you need to have can you explain what dual governance what's is what's that oh uh, yes yeah so the simple way to you know the way that Lido more or less works today is like okay LDO token holders control the DAO um, so now you end up in a situation where okay we're Ethereum if all the stake ends up with Lido and they're picking all the delegates well, and that means that LDO holders are picking all the delegates instead of like Ethereum and like we're very misaligned now. So dual governance, uh, the way that like Lido is proposing it is to give like Steeth holders potentially like veto rights in uh, a lot of circumstances because like they are presumably obviously ETH aligned, like they are ETH stakers. Yeah. And so if, you know, LDO token holders start to have some like malicious proposal that's like against Ethereum's interest, Steeth holders can veto that. Um, so like that helps greatly mitigate the, okay, this LST governance is just like going to go do their crazy thing. That's bad for us. For proof of stake to be like viable at all in the long run, I act under the assumption that liquid staking tokens, like they end up cannibalizing like most of the stake. And if that ends up cannibalizing most of the stake, like you need to have a way for them to be aligned with the protocol itself. So like something like dual governance is just like an absolute necessity in my mind. Um, So I assume that's where you would end up if a rollup implements some form of proof of stake is liquid stake and tokens would arise. They would hopefully implement some form of like dual governance such that Mm -hmm. like, you know, staked OP or staked ARB token or whatever has like veto rights or whatnot. The question is at like that point is the big difference between the rollups and Ethereum is I don't think the rollups, if they don't need to care about a permissionless validator set, so they don't care if, you know, Ethereum validator number 1 million can join this thing. So we don't need proof of stake for that. And if we end up in the spot where realistically most of the capital is delegated, this whole like slashing thing kind of loses its punch when like it's not your money. Like I am using someone else's money that was delegated to me. Um, So like I question how honestly valuable that is. You end up in like the best case scenario where you have this liquid staking token that like they're picking the delegates under the hood for you. And then, you know, your roll up governance has like some form of veto rights. Does it make sense at that point if we have active governance and we don't need a permissionless validator set to just say like, hey, our roll-up governance will just decide ourselves and we don't have any staking, we don't have a staking token, it is just whatever the form of our roll-up governance is, is like we just pick the 30 sequencers as opposed to Lido, whoever else picking them for us and like having the staking tokens. Like, why do we need that kind of middle process uh-huh. in there? I think the particularly interesting way is like if someone like Lido or whoever else like they're basically delegation slash picking of these people like as a service. Like we will do a better job of picking these geographically distributed people. Like we are ready to go of like bootstrapping. Mm-hmm. Like these are the 30 people who like fit your needs and like we can set this up for you, et cetera. Um, like that becomes very interesting versus a lot of like governance is hard. <laughs> like most rollups are going to like have a very difficult time of picking like, oh, these are the perfect like operators that we all want. And like repeating that process over and over again is difficult. Um so it like it, it's become interesting in my mind. Like, what what is the reason in this scenario? If I'm a roll up that has like an active governance that I trust, and I don't really care about having like validator number one million be able to join my validator set, like, what is the point of staking at that point versus just like let governance decide directly and like mm-hmm. do do away with staking?
Yeah, I think the argument that I find convincing is that um, the rollup already inherits a lot of decentralization from Ethereum, and so it doesn't need to be as secure, and so it doesn't need to, um, you know, basically incur so much overhead, you know, both in terms of cost, but degradation also of user experience from having this decentralized sequencer selection mechanism. And why couldn't they also like exert some amount of power through governance? I think um, the argument I don't find convincing is that liquid staking would be the end game for rollups. So I think liquid staking works really well on Ethereum um, for a few reasons. Um, so the first one is that ETH is actually used as money um, and is, is used as collateral very actively, but no rollup token is. I don't know that that's going to change. Because already rollups today you know, support um, fee payment, you know, in Eve. Um, several of them have account abstraction, which is a topic we didn't talk much about today, which is also super fascinating. Um, and I think, I mean, we are going to a place where people can pay their fees in any token. Um, I don't think really there's any much demand to use, uh, for example, the Arbitrum token, the Optimism token, and so on. For anything, so I don't like. For me, as a strategic advisor to Lido, I would not greenlight. Like, not that we have a process for greenlighting. I'm speaking metaphorically, but I would not support um, an expansion of Lido, for example, to a layer two for that reason, because I think it's basically completely futile um, mm. to go into that market. So I don't think you're actually skipping that step. I think if you went to proof of stake, I think it would stay. Um, you know, non-liquid, um, probably for the most part. Um, but that, I mean, that's like a minor part of your argument, right? I think the, the, the main part is actually that it's already pretty, uh, pretty trustless, even if we have governance in the mix. Um, and I would largely agree with that. I, I, I wonder, what do you think for chains that, <clears throat> so let me take a step back because we've, um, we have seen one thing that we have seen like one and a half, one year ago is a lot of the rollups, rollup layer twos actually saying, we want to be the place where you can build layer threes and you can settle, you know, the data and the proofs and so on to our layer two. And so, and they kind of retain the option, I guess, over the longer term to kind of untether from Ethereum itself. And either, you know, don't post their data anywhere or, you know, post it on some off-chain data availability solution, right? But I, I think everybody wants to be the settlement layer, you know, if you will. And so um, for a chain that has these ambitions, and I mean, you would have to think like Optimism, Arbitrum, Starknet, ZK Sync, I mean, they all are dreaming big and they want to build, you know, an ecosystem of chains, whether that's, you know, many layer two chains and you have a kind of super chain, you have like a sequencer in the case of optimism or whether it's a kind of layer three ecosystem, like in the case of, you know, ZK Sync and Starknet and Scroll. Um, would you think different then about the need for sequencer decentralization? I think it is significantly more important for them to figure out their governance in that position than figuring out like the maximally 
supposedly decentralized sequencer mechanism. It, like that, mm-hmm. like that is in my mind what's going to be more important. And so, I mean, like using optimism as an example. So, like base won't be deployed as an L three, like settling to optimism. They're not doing that. It'll just be like it'll be another L two, which oh, I think yeah. is very reasonable. Um, the benefits of L threes are like kind of fuzzy in a lot of cases. For optimistic um, rollups, they're pretty fuzzy, right? Because the the layer three would have to post the data to the layer two, but then the layer two has to post the data to the layer one, right? And so can is it fair to say that that's different for validity proof rollups? Because they can actually um, you know bundle all of the proofs together. Yeah, the the clearest, like simplest benefit would be if you're a ZK rollup and the proofs that you would be posting to Ethereum, particularly if you want to post them frequently, if those are really expensive to verify on Ethereum, um, I mean, you could do different forms of like aggregating those and like converting them to different proofs that are cheaper to verify on Ethereum. But in general, like if you'd be posting a lot of proofs and expensive to verify them on Ethereum, it probably makes sense to like, yeah, we could just dump them on an L2, you aggregate a bunch of them and then we settle them back down because like it's cheaper to use there. Like that one makes sense. Um, there are other random benefits of it as well, but yeah, I would think it's like clearest in that case. Um, but in, in any, do you hmm? think Ethereum will add any pre-compiles for, uh, you know, solving, you know, verifying these proofs? Um, not any time soon. Not any time soon. Okay. Would be my guess. It, like none of, like most of them are just pretty political. Um, and like doing anything that would be seen as favoring like it, any of the more targeted ideas that are like that would be seen as potentially favoring like one type of ZK rollup over another. I don't think like I don't, I don't think it's going to make sense um, for them. They to should be able all to I mean it. work together and like first agree on one opcode that they want, right? And then get Ethereum to do that because wouldn't they all benefit tremendously if that was the case? I, I feel like the answer is yes. I mean, based on particularly, like, I mean, they already have such divergent plans at this point that, like, oh yeah, we'll all go back to doing this would be kind of it would be kind of difficult. But oh, yeah, I, I mean, in theory, yes, if everyone did the same thing, like, it would be nicer. But I think they're just like so divergent that like it's probably hard to coordinate that. Um, but yeah, kind of kind of back to the original. Like, I I do think that optimism in this scenario, figuring out their governance, is more important than like what is the sequencer? You know, do we have ten? Do we have twenty sequencers? Is it a hundred? Whatever. Um, like their governance is going to be really important in particular when everyone is using the same bridge contract um, mm-hmm. in this whole like super chain vision. And there's one governance right. uh, so, like that is supposedly going to control that like in the long run, like as they have like full governance power, that governance is going to matter a lot. Uh, like that is going to be very, very important. And like chains that are like basically want to outsource their governance to optimism. Like that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like base can effectively like outsource governance to optimism, like should they want to. Um, like that is going to matter a lot in my mind. Like what are the upgrade mm-hmm. mechanisms? Like who's in control of this system? And like those are the people who pick the sequencer. Uh, like th- that is still the most important problem in my, in my mind. And that is like a very, very hard problem figuring yeah. out just like how do we do roll up governance and like think about this problem. Like that is very difficult. Can you explain um, just briefly kind of the vision behind the super chain? Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if I can. Um, I, I mean, like the very general idea is I, I, I'd say every rollup ecosystem has a very similar idea at this point, whether it's them or CK Sync or Polygon talking about Polygon 2.0, like they all have 
similar visions of we're going to kind of be building our whole ecosystem of rollups, and we want within our kind of ecosystem to have enhanced op- in interoperability and shared standards and whatnot across them. So having very fast bridging between them, potentially having a shared sequencer between them, having mm-hmm. forms of like standardized messaging between them, having potentially shared governance to the point where it starts to feel like in this like super chain that, you know, I'm not using 20 different rollups. It kind of feels like I'm using one single rollup. The like super extreme end of this would be the kind of post that um, that Uma from from Succinct had put out. I want to say like a week or two ago. Uh, it's called shared validity sequencing, where you have a shared sequencer for multiple chains. Mm-hmm. Where like in theory, like Base and Optimism could have this shared sequencer. That if you go all the way to the extreme end, they have like shared validity conditions across them, where you know a fault on one like reverts the other chain, and like they like they're actually like fully tied together to the point where they are basically like. A form of sharding of like you're basically on one chain at that point. Um, I don't think most things are going to go to that extreme. So that's going to be like the interesting question as people build out these ecosystems. And in particular with shared sequencing is there is kind of this whole spectrum of, you know, on the one end is you have a monolithic chain, you put everything on one chain. On mm-hmm. the other end is, you know, we have a million chains that are a million different standards. And then like you like, hey, what if we have a you know, a shared sequencer, but like people have different standards and they're kind of flexible. And like a little bit further over is what if we have a shared sequencer that's fully stateful and is like checking the validity of all these chains. Like then it's like kind of approaching like one chain at that point. So like there's this spectrum of trade-offs that'll depend on like what is your application? Like how much do you care about being like basically on the same chain as, you know, the chain next to you versus, hey, we want to have our own governance. We want to be able to hard fork by ourselves and like make mm-hmm. our own decisions. So there's going to be this like interesting spectrum and that's going to be a very like political social thing for them to figure out and then also just kind of emergent based on you know what are the applications that actually use these things and like yeah. how much interoperability do they need between them um like scott from argus had a he had a really interesting presentation uh like at the show uh i'll show the research day videos of like <laughs> he was talking about like um about this in the context of like gaming where, you know, there is no need for this shared sequencing for like a bunch of different game shards to have this, you know, perfect synchronous composability between them. Like they're different games. Like they, yeah. they don't need that. Like we don't need to optimize for that. They could be just like completely basically different shards that, you know, share some infrastructure behind the scenes. So there's gonna be like different trade-off spaces for like different applications, which will be like really interesting to see. Um, John, we have to wrap up soon, but do you, would you like to summarize what are the main takeaways for our listeners today? Yeah. So on the rollup front, as people start to think about their decentralization roadmap, I think that there's a lot of natural tendency to draw parallels and lessons from Ethereum of, you know, we're an Ethereum rollup. This is what Ethereum is doing for PBS for its validators. Like, Mm -hmm. we need to be doing the same thing. I think there's a natural tendency to do that. And in general, I don't think that is usually going to be the right spot on kind of the trade-off spectrum for most of these rollups, because they are very inherently used for a different thing. Like Ethereum is being made to serve these rollups and give these kinds of guarantees. These rollups are being made for users to be used on a shorter time scale. Mm-hmm. Um, like they are fundamentally trying to give different properties. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for them to design themselves very differently in reflection of that. Um, in particular, like I think a lot of it might look a little more cosmosy than it does Ethereum, where Ethereum it makes sense to be the most like permissionless and try to be decentralized as possible, whereas I think that rollups are going to have to think a lot more about opinionated governance, whether they like it or not. Like, I, uh-huh. I think that is naturally going to arise, and with that naturally going to arise, uh, probably need to lean into that and like figure that out. Like, 
very, very strongly. Uh, I think that is potentially going to be the more important and kind of the driving factor between like, how do these systems play out in the long run? Like, how do we figure out the incentives mm -hmm. in this system? Like, how do we keep everyone in check? Um, it's going to be figuring out a lot of very different points on the kind of trade-off spectrum versus Ethereum. Okay, so, and I mean, one thing where you said this in particular, it would be the sequencer. Right? So you, you think sequencers should be determined by governance. And so I hear from two directions that you think governance will actually become an incredibly important topic for rollups to figure out on the one end, because they, the, actually the biggest thing that they all need to decentralize is kind of the stewardship of their smart contracts. Um, so who controls that? Who can update it? What are the guardrails? Um, how do you also mitigate? You know, it's not just as simple as just making it immutable because things can go wrong and we, we may need some mechanism for upgrading it. But then also sequencer decentralization. And you, you say you are basically arguing governance is kind of the focal point where both of these ideas meet. And so governance is a really under-researched, underdeveloped area right now in roll-up land. Is that right? Yeah, broadly, yes. And I think that most roll-ups are going to be forced into this decision. Like Ethereum doesn't have to think about this because there's no smart contract on Ethereum that controls most of the money on Ethereum. Roll-ups all today and many in the future are going to have this one smart contract that controls a hell of a lot of the money on the roll-up. Uh -huh. And that contract governance, governance may de facto be the roll-up governance. So if they hold a ton of power over the chain that we're not used to thinking about on something like Ethereum, where you know we have this committee that like controls most of the money, uh, they're going to have a lot of power and like be driving the decisions in large part. Um, so thinking about that yeah. is going to be like very important because it just fundamentally changes the way that you have to think about all this in my mind. Because I think a lot of stuff is going to have to be way more opinionated. When you said we probably won't have a contract on Ethereum that has a lot of money in it, I, I had to think about liquid staking and kind of the outcome from that market. Yeah. I, that's probably the closest one yeah. that we may get. And it's no coincidence, I think, that the challenges faced by liquid staking protocols to find ways to you know, marry immutability and you know security uh, and to decentralize their governance, I think... Like, yeah, I think you and I, we agree that there's a huge overlap between, for example, you know, the roadmap of a Lido and and the roadmap of, you know, a yeah. roll-up. Um, that there's much more here to discover than, you know, typically meets the eye. Okay. Yep. That was a very interesting perspective. I'd not heard this before. Um, thank you, John. Um, and yeah. Um, I think in terms of cadence, uh, we may do this every every two to three weeks, right? I think that's that's what our listeners can expect. And so, yeah, we'll see you all um, there. Should be fun. See everyone. See ya. Thanks for joining us today. As always, nothing we say here is investment or legal advice. The views expressed by the course are their personal views alone. Please see our podcast description for more disclosures. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe and share it on Twitter. Thanks and goodbye.